Hello everyone, and welcome to the Mark Inesito podcast. I'm Mark Inesito, and today's podcast is going to be an interview that I did uh, August of last year. I actually posted it already on my YouTube channel, so those of you that might have watched it already, um, awesome. This is the first time I'm posting it on uh, the audio file. Um... So my dad, before he passed away, we were talking about my podcast in general, and he had mentioned, you should do a podcast about Las Vegas, because we went to Vegas a couple years ago, my wife and I, and um, our goddaughters, and my parents went too, my dad and stepmom. Anyway, uh, it totally changed from when I went before that, you know, because I went about seven, eight, no, I went about eight years in a row with my dad, you know, we went together to Vegas, and it was good times, and um, I guess I'm old school in many ways, you know, I I wish they kept some of the old places on the strip, but they tore them down, and you know, they say out with the old and with the new, right, you know, it's, it's for mom, more money, okay, well, you know, whatever, you know, I guess, but it's still kind of, you know, I wish I kept some of the old places for its nostalgia. Um... Yeah, I mean, I like places too, like the Mirage, and of course, Treasure Island, uh, Caesar's Palace, Excalibur, Mandalay Bay, MGM Grand, you know, Pyramids, uh, you know, um, a lot of stuff. Uh, but, uh, I mean, they're building some new places on the Strip, and it, it just, it just looks different, and of course, that's what I expected, you know, <clears throat> when you build new places, it's going to be different. But like I said, I wish it kept some of the old places, you know, for its history and nostalgia. But, you know, it is what it is. I can't complain, you know. I think the last time I went to Vegas was just back in 2019, like I said, with my wife and, you know, my family. Uh, I didn't really care for it. It was alright for the most part, but it just, it just, it was, it just... Something like it was changing. Um, so my interview I had was with uh, UNLV professor Michael Green. And when I had a conversation with him, we chatted for about uh, maybe a, not really an hour per se. For um, less than an hour or so. Um, we chatted up a little bit and I felt like I knew more about Vegas after talking with him than what I knew prior reading the history, watching movies, whatever, you know. Uh, I feel I knew more, you know. I felt like, wow, <laughs> very informative, very, you know, historical, you know, idea. So, um, so here's the interview I had with him. Michael Green back in August. Like I said, I posted it on YouTube already, so if you watch a video, uh, or if you want to watch a video, go for it. Check out my YouTube channel, The Mark and the Studio Podcast. Um, and uh, here's the audio of it. So without further ado, here's my interview with UNLV professor Michael Green. Real fast. Okay. Um, and do a little, I'm gonna do a brief intro here. Before I start, I'm 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 a little nervous. 
Um, Don't be. I, I tend to stutter when I get nervous. I've been having this problem since I was a kid. So just, just if you, if I do have the if I do get a little too fast for you, just ask me to slow down. I definitely will. So okay. And, sure. and with me, if I'm screwing up or doing something wrong, you tell me. Sure thing. Sure thing. No problem. All right. Let's get started here. Hello, everyone. Mark Nacito here. I am pleased to introduce today's guest. He is an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He has written books on topics such as the Civil War and about the great city of Las Vegas, including Las Vegas Centennial History, which with Eugene Moring, hope I get that right, I'm not sure, and a liberal conscience, Ralph Denton, Nevadan. The University of Nevada Press published his college-level textbook, Nevada, A History of the Silver State. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Michael Green. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Yes, no, thank you very much for your time again. Uh, first off, I want to ask you, what inspired you to want to learn about Las Vegas in general? Well, I think part of it was becoming a historian and growing up here. Now I could cite my father actually being fired from his casino dealing job by the guy Robert De Niro played in Casino wow. and uh, working at a newspaper that both reported on and dug into uh, what the mob was doing here and help the mob skim money, <laughs> which may seem totally contradictory, but welcome to journalism. Yeah. So that was part of it. And to be fair, you know, in history, you're looking for original documents, sources, and you're also looking for things that aren't really being discussed. And Las Vegas is one of those places that over the years, a lot of people have had trouble taking seriously. Uh, it's very possible right now, if you said to somebody, I'm gonna to talk to a professor from Las Vegas, they're going to ask if I look like Elvis uh, or wear gold chains or what lounge I perform in. So just about anything is possible. So there was just so much to dig into that I, I know I'll never get to all of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot to it. There's a lot to it, definitely. Um, in your own words, how was Las Vegas founded, established, if you will? Well, of course, there were Native Americans here forever and ever, amen. Mm -hmm. And then in the late 1820s, early 1830s, Mexican traders began coming through. John Fremont uh, explores the area and does a map of it in the mid 1840s uh, that really literally puts Las Vegas on the map, but also it's the best map of the area. So Brigham Young ends up sending a group of Mormon missionaries to Las Vegas in 1855. And you'd call that the first Anglo or non-indigenous settlement here. It doesn't last long. They, they leave after a couple of years. And there's a variety of reasons, but I always quote my uh, old undergraduate advisor at UNLV, Ralph Roski, used to say the most important person in the history of Las Vegas is not Bugsy Siegel or Steve Wynn. It's Willis Carrier because he invented the air conditioner. If he hadn't mm. done that, nobody would be here. True. Uh, so eventually, after uh, there were some ranching families here, in the early 20th century, a senator from Montana, William Andrews Clark, started building a railroad that ended up going through Las Vegas. It was the San Pedro, Los Angeles, and Salt Lake Railroad. And he bought the land, got the water rights, and eventually his company auctioned off land downtown. And while we wouldn't say that's really the first settlement of Las Vegas, it's the most important settlement of Las Vegas. And the city kind of splays out from there over the next, well, 116 years now. Interesting, that's interesting. Um, 
When was the first wedding chapel founded and how did it change to where it's at today? Well, I'm not sure of the exact you know, wedding chapel itself mm -hmm. because there have been changes in the laws, for example, about weddings. One of the reasons people come here for weddings is that in 1941, the state legislature eliminated the blood test requirement. Hmm. So in 1964, my parents came here to get married. Uh, my father's last name was Green. My mother's last name was Green without an E, excuse me, with an E. My father was Green without the E. And they had to swear in front of a policeman that they were not related, as opposed to getting a blood test to prove it. That's easy wow. to get married. Yeah. And so you begin to see some chapels popping up, I'd say, in the 30s. And then in the 40s, when the strip is being developed, uh, some of the hotels have their own wedding chapels. Hmm. And it really mushrooms from there. But uh, there was one called uh, the Little Church of the West that I think is considered one of the classic ones. And at one point, the Last Frontier Hotel had a wedding chapel called the Hitching Post, which is a pretty good, pretty good term for a wedding chapel, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. But uh, to this day, these are multi-million dollar industries here uh, where we have everything from your traditional wedding to drive-through weddings conducted by Elvis. <laughs> yeah, so if, you want, if you want Elvis to, to do your wedding, I think you can do it here. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, or like a like a like a renewing your vows or whatever. I guess that would make oh, sense. Oh, that too. So that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, yeah. History.com states that Nevada outlawed gambling in 1910, but then it stopped speakeasies from providing gambling. What was it like during that period? Well, the the law against gambling was played with, I'd call it, by the legislature. Uh, until the final legalization in 1931. So there were some forms of gambling going on. Uh, the speakeasies, once prohibition comes in, uh, there is actually a pretty big fight in Nevada over how to enforce it. Uh, Reno had the best example of this because in 1923, they had a mayoral election where the candidate who won had promised to put a whiskey barrel on every corner with a dipper. <laughs> uh, never mind prohibition, he was going to do that. But Las Vegas and Nevada were so much smaller then. Uh, the population of Las Vegas when Prohibition began was about 2,300. This is 1920. Uh, now, the population doubles by 1930 with Hoover Dam construction coming. But it, it's really a tiny railroad town. And for the most part, uh, though not entirely, uh, federal agents uh, weren't too interested. In fact, they eventually do a lot of arrests here. They run a sting operation where they set up a guy in his own little speakeasy with a primitive mm -hmm. recorder and arrested a bunch of prominent people. And the mayor at the time was twice arrested for bootlegging. Uh, many years later, of course, and uh, I guess we're going to talk about him, Oscar Goodman became mayor. And Oscar did ads for Bombay Sapphire Gin. And he was very disappointed when I told him that one of his predecessors had even been arrested for bootlegging. You know, Oscar wasn't the first mayor around here having booze on, on the premises. Mm -hmm. uh, but Nevada was not yet quite the tourist attraction that it would become. And in that period, like 1910 to 1930, where gambling is much more limited, drinking is much more limited, uh, divorce in northern Nevada was the big industry around Reno. 
And so you still had people coming here to get divorces and there were ranches set up uh, for people to reside. And the attitude tended to be, well, if they got some booze and did something at home, that isn't really our business. Okay. Right. I mean, when gambling was legalized in 1931, um, that's when organized crime became involved in Las Vegas. Again, what inspired the mafia to get involved with the whole Las Vegas thing at the time? Like, mm -hmm. what, what really triggers it, there are signs of it around 1931, and it really starts getting bigger in World War II and afterward. And it's a combination of things. One of them is with prohibition ending, there goes a major revenue source for organized crime. Mm -hmm. They can still provide alcohol, but you know, they're, they're, it's legal. So brewers can get back in business. And no real need for the organized crime folks. Mm -hmm. Another factor is the growth of the Southwest generally. Las Vegas was growing thanks to the building of Hoover Dam and the legalization of gambling and easy divorce. But Southern California was growing rapidly. And that quickly became the biggest market for Las Vegas, and it remains an enormous market for the area. And here's money to be made. Mm -hmm. Here's an opportunity. Las Vegas also was a new city without, you know, if we, if we think about our relationships with other people, romantic and otherwise, we come into them with baggage. We all do. And Las Vegas didn't have that much baggage for these guys because the town really hadn't existed before 1905, meaning it was within their lifetimes. Whereas to compare Reno, bigger city, had been around longer, more of an established elite, and frankly, less committed to gambling, less certain it wanted to go in this direction. Mm -hmm. Las Vegas, we need people moving here and gambling and visiting, come on in. So uh, that was part of the appeal uh, for organized crime, I think the money, the ability to make the money here, mm -hmm. and uh, the market that was available to them. Interesting. Um, yeah, Boulder Dam, again, being worked on in 1931, which later became known as Hoover Dam. Uh, what was the experience like for workers who worked on the dam? And they drove down Fremont Street and go on the casinos and the shoulder venues. <laughs> That's how curiosity, yeah. Yeah, well, let, let, let's start with the workers themselves. Yes, um, yes. You, you've got people working in these tunnels that they're digging to divert the river and then build the dam, mm -hmm. where it is 130, 140 degrees down there. Uh, it's incredibly difficult. There are high scalers going up the rocks. Uh, there are dangers involved. It, it was not mm -hmm. that safe a workplace. The federal government set aside land and built them a community. And it's now called Boulder City, as it long was. The technical name originally was Boulder Canyon Federal Reservation. And if you think, well, reservation, that sounds a bit like maybe an Indian reservation. Exactly. The federal government had that kind of control. And they wanted it to be a model city. And they planned it. That's model. But the other model part was we're not going to allow vice. No gambling, no prostitution, no drinking which meant that they had to leave town for those things. And to this day, there is no legal gambling in Boulder City, Nevada. It is the only incorporated city in the state where gambling is illegal. Uh, there's also a town north of Las Vegas in Lincoln County, Panaca, which outlaws gambling. But anyway, so the workers from the dam, at least generally speaking, the single men, 
the married men now had homes in Boulder City and families. Mm-hmm. But uh, on payday nights, uh, they would hit Las Vegas. And there was an area on First Street between Stewart and Ogden, which is just north of Fremont Street, mm-hmm. called Block 16, because it was the 16th block in the town site that was auctioned. Mm-hmm. That was the name of the block. And originally, it was the only place where they sold alcohol. And then prostitution came in. And so this was the red light district of Las Vegas. And the workers would go in there and they'd gamble and they'd drink and yeah, they do some other things. Uh And uh, it was a big contribution to the local economy, truthfully. Uh, They were benefiting Las Vegas generally. They were having their fun. And then back to the dam they went and back to work they went. Now, there was a story the other day in which I was quoted in the Review Journal about Railroad Pass, which is a pass the railroad came through near Boulder City. Mm-hmm. And that was a casino and originally brothel built just outside the limits of the model city for the workers. So some of them would just go there, but most of them wanted to go down the highway into a real town and did. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Hold on a second here. Okay, there we go. Sorry, I lost my questions here. Um, um, in 1941, the, the El Rancho Vegas Resort opens on US 91, which is, became known as the Strip. Soon after, other casinos began opening. How did this so come about? Well, there had been the casinos on Fremont Street uh-huh. and, and some smaller hotels. And apparently, business leaders here wanted to attract a resort hotel casino. Now, how we define a resort hotel casino today is not how they defined it, Mm -hmm. as we'll see. But they ended up getting in touch with a hotel owner named Tom Hull. Now, he owned what they called motor hotels, similar to motels, uh, that was an El Rancho chain. They had the El Rancho San Bernardino, the El Rancho Fresno. And he Mm -hmm. came to Las Vegas and he looked at it and he liked the idea of building here. First, he didn't intend to put in a casino originally. He thought he should just do a hotel. And business people said, well, you know, Mr. Hall, you're you're going to do a lot better with a casino. All right. He also did not want to deal with city taxes and fees. So he chose a spot outside the city limits of Las Vegas, the corner of US 91, actually the Southwest corner, of US 91, which is now the Strip, and San Francisco Street, which is now the Sahara. So he did not have to worry about what the city did. He was in the county, different kind of rules. He built the El Rancho Vegas, and it had something like 65 rooms. And today, that isn't even one floor of a major hotel casino. Yeah. That's... But it was also designed for divorcing people. That the rooms were set up so that, yeah, you could stay there six weeks and have your own food if you really wanted. But it had many of the things we associate with the modern resort because it had the entertainment, it had shopping, it ended up having a buffet. Originally it didn't, they had a restaurant. But the story with the buffet is the publicity director there at the hotel, a guy named Herb McDonald, uh, was there late one night, got hungry, went in the kitchen, got some sandwich fixings, came out, sat down at a at the bar and was making them, and people were coming over, where can we eat, where can we eat? And that's when they started putting in the buffets. So it's, it's the beginning. Uh, you know, we, we wouldn't say, oh, 
it, everything you associate with today's modern hotel casino is there, but you can see the prototype at that point. And others soon followed the last frontier in 1942, the Flamingo in 46. And from there, now, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I can claim as a local that the strip is only there to keep me from getting from one side of town to the other easily, <laughs> but still, it, it's an incredible sight. It is. It is, yeah. I'm just curious, why is it called the strip? The story, and, and mind you, there, there isn't someone who you know, was there to record it or anything like that. The story is that one of the nightclubs on Highway 91 in the 30s, it was called the Pair O Dice is in paradise, but spelled pair o dice. And the owner sold it to Guy McAfee, who was an LA gambler, gambling operator, I should say. He'd been a vice cop and he was involved in all kinds of vice. And he eventually would build the Golden Nugget downtown and his partners got involved in several other properties. And allegedly McAfee looked out at the cars coming down Highway 91 and he said, you know, this reminds me of a street I used to cruise in Southern California, the Sunset Strip. Oh, yeah. And it allegedly yeah. stuck. And we have tried over the years to prove one way or the other that McAfee definitely said this. And I know someone who's doing a biography of him, so there may end up with some proof. Uh, but near as we can tell, that's the origin story. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's really interesting. Uh, when, okay. Um, yeah, when Mug when I came talk now, when Muggsy Siegel came to Las Vegas, what was his vision, his overall vision? You know, it's a good question because there are a lot of myths around Siegel. And there are people who argue he had no vision at all, that he was just a garden variety thug who got involved in business, got in over his head. And there are others who think that he it was like the scene in the movie Bugsy, where Warren Beatty goes out in the desert, looks around. And, and suddenly has a vision. And I think that Siegel wanted to be legitimate. He wanted at the same time to continue serving his mobster friends. And the hotel itself was apparently not his idea, but actually the brainchild of a Hollywood businessman, Billy Wilkerson, who published the Hollywood Reporter newspaper and owns a, a nightclub or two in the LA area. And Wilkerson, unfortunately, was addicted to gambling and alcohol and lost the money and he needed investors. And so Siegel invested with him and then eventually took over. Now, how much of it was that Wilkerson was originally a front man? Uh, Wilkerson has his defenders and I'm among them. I think it was most likely his idea. But once he got into it, Siegel was really interested in this whole notion, I'm going to build a luxury resort. And the Flamingo was really modeled on the Fontainebleau in Miami and other luxury hotels you would have found in those kinds of tourist cities. And mm -hmm. Siegel pushed for the most luxurious hotel he could build, which uh, cost a total of six million in 1946. And uh, when you're talking about uh, multi-billion dollar hotels opening in Las Vegas, you know, well, luxury's even changed since 1946. Yeah. Yeah. But he, of course, opened it. It was not a success. He closed, reopened, was apparently doing better. But whatever the factors, he eventually was killed and other mobsters came in and took over. Hmm. Now, 
again, this is anecdotal, but I had a friend who was invited personally by Siegel to the opening of the Flamingo. And he told the guy, buy land. There are going to be a million people here. Well, maybe Siegel did see something. Uh, and so on the one hand, we don't want to give him too much credit. But on the other hand, it is also possible for a mobster to have ideas. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I, I, like to, I try to play that one kind of down the middle a little bit anyway. Yeah, I hear you what you're saying. Um, entertainment was a factor for Las Vegas. Uh, what was it like when the Rat Pack were in town filming Ocean's Eleven? Oh, uh, let's just say that uh, if I had been here, uh, I can't figure out if I would have wanted to be there or I would have hidden. Uh, because it was just a wild time. Uh -huh. And mind you, you had these five big stars who were filming for a little while each day, uh -huh. uh, carousing, drinking, and uh, then maybe sleeping a couple of hours and doing these shows. Now, they came together here to do the filming, and the operators of the Sands, the guy who was the president and in charge of entertainment, Jack and Tratter, and their publicity man, Al Freeman, got the idea I think it was Freeman's idea, that Dwight Eisenhower and Nikita Khrushchev were supposed to have a summit. So they said, well, you know, the, the leaders of the free world are have, and the communist world are having a summit. How about a, a summit of the leaders of the entertainment world? So they actually called it the Summit at the Sands and did invite Ike and Khrushchev to visit. Uh, for some reason, they didn't make it. Uh, there was a much younger politician running for president, a senator from Massachusetts named John Kennedy, who did come by. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so originally the idea was they were all in town and one or the other would perform. And the original advertising was, you know, you don't know who's going to show up. Mm -hmm. The idea was Frank might do the eight o'clock show. Dean might do the midnight show. The next night, Sammy would be at dinner. Joey would be at whatever. Mm -hmm. And instead, they, they all ended up just being on stage together. And it was a really exciting time, both because of their presence and the movie being filmed here that was going to put Las Vegas in an entertaining light, mm -hmm. but also other entertainers and public figures coming here to be part of the excitement. And they'd mm -hmm. introduce them from the audience. Here's Lucille Ball. Here's Jack Benny. Uh, there's a story that Bob Hope was in the audience. They introduced him. He came on stage and that he wouldn't leave the stage. So they threw him off the stage. Really? And they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, some of it was incredibly politically incorrect by our standards and, and frankly, racist uh, to, to modern thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. While at the same time here was Sammy Davis Jr. essentially being considered by many an equal of these prominent white entertainers. Mm -hmm. uh, so they do this for about five weeks and it is just a wild party every night. And every, and every night, it's getting national attention. So it's, it's the kind of advertising I don't think Las Vegas could have bought. And, and it kind of goes to the idea that Las Vegas was the only place in the country, or at least Nevada was, where you could gamble legally and find this kind of entertainment. And frankly, you didn't usually find the same level of entertainment and mm -hmm. action in northern Nevada. So this is promoting Las Vegas as the place you go to do all the things you're not supposed to do. And heaven knows, Frank, Dean, Sammy, and Peter, Joey tended to go back to his room. 
uh, but they certainly did all the things we're not supposed to do. <laughs> if we want to live that. a long life. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It's definitely, it's interesting. Um, in the in the in the post legal era, what was it like when the mafia was in control of Las Vegas? Like like from the fifties until like maybe like the mid to late seventies, whatever. You know, yeah, era. you had organized crime owning and operating most of the strip hotel casinos really until the late 70s, and then they're being pushed out. And I really say the last organized crime connected operation, the Stardust, they were pushed out of there in 83. So you can kind of find a date, if you will. And a lot of people look back and say, oh, it was so much better then. And I, I think we make a mistake then, because we're nostalgic for a period that didn't entirely exist the way we think it did. But also certain things were, yes, better, if you feel that's better, and others would disagree. So, so let me pick that apart a little bit or try to explain it. First of all, the hotel casinos were a lot smaller. When the Desert Inn opened, they very proudly advertised that their casino was 2,400 square feet. Well, today's casinos is 75,000, 100,000 square feet. <laughs> These are yeah. enormous properties in comparison. So when they say, oh, well, they knew you by name then and they don't now. Well, try to learn all the names of people in that big a casino. Mm -hmm. Actually, they do know your names because of the little slot cards and that sort of thing. Uh, the food was good. It was cheap by the standards of its time. Uh, the comparison today is, well, the, the food is more expensive, but it's better. We have the celebrity chefs. We have the major restaurants and, and a more diverse food, more ethnic food. Uh, the shopping has certainly gotten a lot bigger and better. I think the technology means that the hotels themselves and the rooms are more advanced now. But in their time, they were very luxurious and very well done. One of the big differences is the entertainment in that it used to be you could, on a Wednesday night, see Sinatra at the Sands. And Frank once said, for six bucks, you get filet mignon and me. And today, uh, you're not likely to see the big names in the showroom on a weeknight, maybe <laughs> on a weekend, or more likely in a concert venue. Uh, Surf to Soleil is great. It's a great, these are great productions. But there were production shows back then, too. Uh, I would say that it was not a good place to be if you were a woman or especially if you were African-American or, or Hispanic. But it was a different time and they were very shrewd operators. We tend to think of the mobs, you know, these devs and those guys, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and they were, they were business people here. Uh, yeah, they might've had some these devs and those guys around and they might've done that in their youth and knocked a few heads, but these were mostly people who knew how to run a business and did and did it very well. Mm -hmm. And there was a bit more elegance to it. My dad came here to visit in the mid-50s and had to wear a tie to the showroom. I mean, this was the expectation. And, and so we, we associate the period, I think, with more elegance. Uh, also, you know, we're talking via Zoom and we're both on computers. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that back then. No. We barely had TV. So... Las Vegas was, you might say, a little more imaginary to people. 
you know, they got to imagine what it would be like or to come here and then live their imagination. Today, you, know, you, you can go online, you can find out whatever you want about Las Vegas, mm-hmm. I'd say. Uh, but another change, and I don't think this is a change for the better, uh, is uh, the story of the comp or the complementary. And it used to be that they was, oh, well, you know, you want a free dinner? Go ahead. Uh, here, here's a free dinner. And their attitude was, you know, we're, we're going to make the money in the casino. Uh, we're not too worried. We're, if we feed you a little too well, you, you'll appreciate it and you'll gamble more. Mm-hmm. And with corporate control, and it's certainly corporate, every department has to show a bottom line that's profitable. And they are far more scientific about things. So uh, once upon a time, when I was a kid, this is the late 60s, early 70s, uh, there was a neighborhood casino we'd go to, and the owner would bounce me on his knee. I was four years old. And uh, then we'd get comp for the 99-cent rib dinner. Well, you're not going to find a 99-cent rib dinner now. Uh, that's changed anyway. But uh, they're not going to say, oh, there's good old Mike. Let's give him a comp. It's well, now let's see. He has gambled this much. He spent this much here, this much there. Uh, we, we will do that. And so there is a bit less... It is a bit less personal and personable than it used to be, but it's also different strokes for different folks. I mean, some people are going to say, wow, you know, I can, I can walk up to the door of my room, stare at the key, or I stare at the uh, lock, and it lets me in through facial recognition. That's a little different. <laughs> I, I can stay in my room, and I can watch this huge screen or whatever, and uh, it, it's just a different atmosphere. Something that's important to remember. 48 states now have some form of legal gambling. If you come to Las Vegas, yeah, gambling is probably on the agenda, but Las Vegas has to offer you other things or else you'll just go to the corner casino in your town in, say, Pennsylvania or wherever you might be. Mm-hmm. And so Las Vegas had to adapt to the times and you know, change is not easy. Uh, there's that book, Who Moved My Cheese? And uh, my wife likes to say, if they ever reissue it, I should be on the cover. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big proponent of change. I, I don't like to do new things usually, but yeah. you know, Las Vegas has to, to survive. Yep, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of agree with what you said about your dad when he came here, he had to wear a tie, he said. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my first time in Vegas, I was playing a slot machine. I was next to this one guy, he had a suit on and tie, you know, and he's like, Saying, you know, why can't people come here? You know, can people dress in their suit and ties? You know, like why they couldn't dress enough for it? This, this, wear me yourself, wear shorts, wear jeans, wear whatever. I'm like, you're in a suit yourself. What, what do you got to say? <laughs> you know, I, don't, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny thing ever. I ever, I'm like, dude. No, that's good. <laughs> he would be the one to complain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that, I was kind of funny myself. Yeah, like back then, they had like street like rules. Like, like you got to wear a suit, you got to wear a tie in a casino or whatever. Now you can wear jeans and a t-shirt. Doesn't matter. There's no big. Yeah, and idea. of course that that's also a function of society. Yeah, I mean, in my line of work, it used to be a professor came to class in a jacket and tie, and uh, then I learned uh, over in England uh, what they would do is say Oxford, mm-hmm. they'd be wearing their robes. It's like, well, I'm glad I don't have to wear my robes. They're too warm. But, you know, I, it, imagine, I wore a jacket and tie when I started teaching. I thought, it's 110 degrees. What are you doing? I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Insane. Um, 
Okay, explain more about Frank Lefty Rosenthal and what he was trying to do in the case regarding his casino license. <laughs> well, Lefty Rosenthal had been one of the great sports betters, odds makers you ever would have encountered. And he came to Las Vegas and he wanted to be in the casino business. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also the theory that uh, friends of his in the Chicago mob wanted him in that business. And ultimately, uh, he was supposed to run the Stardust Hotel and the other hotels owned by Argent Corporation, uh, which was short for Alan R. Glick Enterprises, or if you prefer, Argent, the French word for money. Well, Glick had gotten a 62 plus million dollar loan from the Teamsters. And it turned out the, there were some strings attached. He was apparently supposed to be skimming. Excuse me, I'll have to we'll pause for a second and let me- Yeah, no problem. Hello? We can, we can go back and I'll- Okay. So Glick apparently claimed he didn't think there were strings attached, but there were, and that this was going to be part of a skimming operation for the Chicago, Kansas City, and Milwaukee organized crime families and Rosenthal was to be in charge. Now, Rosenthal wanted a gaming license, but he had criminal record in his background. Uh, he had been involved in the uh, reports of fixing events and that sort of thing. And getting a license was going to be a big problem for him to run a casino. Mm -hmm. So they tried a bunch of different titles for him. At one point, he was the assistant director of public relations and publicity. And the director did not know that he had an assistant. They just gave him the title so he didn't have to be licensed. Uh, for a time, he was entertainment director, although he really had nothing to do with the Lido show and what else the Stardust was doing. But they were trying to avoid having him come up for that license. Well, they couldn't avoid it. And he tried the courts. No, it didn't work. So he went before the state regulators. Now, there is a scene in the movie Casino in <laughs> which De Niro, as Rosenthal's alias, we'll say, Ace Rossi, mm -hmm. is confronting a politician played by Dick Smothers. And in real life, and you can find a film of this on YouTube, hmm. it was actually uh, Harry Reid, who later becomes the Senate Majority Leader, who was chairman of the State Gaming Commission. Hmm. And in the real confrontation, and in real life, uh, Reid was not was himself confronting Rosenthal and vice versa, but there were other politicians. They depicted the Smothers character in Casino doing things that a couple of other politicians had done and then wrapped them all in one. So the scene uh, captures some of what was going on, but not the background. Right. At any rate, the State Gaming Commission ruled that Rosenthal could not be licensed and eventually put him in what is called the Black Book. Uh, which is the list of excluded persons, people who are connected to the mob, convicted of certain crimes, accused of cheating, that sort of thing. And Rosenthal was the only one of the three main characters in the movie Casino who was still alive when Martin Scorsese and Nick Pileggi were going to do the movie. And so it's kind of his story that I think gets told uh, and there are people who would say, well, no, he, it's his version and there are other versions. Well, welcome to history. <laughs> That's the way it tends to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but Rosenthal was a different kind of organized crime figure for Las Vegas. And uh, I'll mention another movie, Bugsy, and there's a scene in it 
where Siegel's talking with Lansky. And Lansky says, you know, Ben, you're becoming famous. Famous is good for Joe DiMaggio. It's not good for you. And you know, that was the idea. In the mob, they tried not to bring attention to themselves, if at all possible, because that brought the heat on them. Rosenthal was doing newspaper columns. He was hosting a TV show. And his attitude was pretty much, you know, I'm truly a legitimate business leader, and you can't touch me. Well, he wasn't really a legitimate business leader, and it turned out they could touch him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me more about Ralph Denton. Ah, well, Ralph was a dear friend, uh, among other things. But Ralph was born in rural Nevada and ended up practicing law in Nevada for more than 60 years, mostly in Las Vegas. He was briefly in a small town up north, Elko. And the title of the oral history, and you mentioned, was A Liberal Conscience. Uh -huh. And Ralph was a political liberal. He, we chose that title because he was kind of a conscience for a lot of Nevada political types. Uh, he believed strongly in doing what was right, and you, know, you, you pay the price if you do. So he ran for Congress, and he took positions that were not necessarily going to endear him to people. He lost. Uh, he represented ACLU and NAACP cases when that was not a popular thing to do. He was active in civil rights here and opposing the Vietnam War. And you can agree or disagree with his positions, but he took them, and he took them publicly, and he took his lumps. He was also the single best storyteller I have ever encountered. And he knew just about everybody. When he went to law school, he was on the patronage of Senator Pat McCarran. Now, McCarran's name is on the airport, and I was just involved in this effort, where the name is going to be changed from McCarran to Harry Reid. And there are people who are unhappy with the politics of that, and all well and good. Pat McCarran was a racist anti-Semite. He did some very good things in his life, but he did some terrible things. Well, among the good things he did was putting kids from Nevada through law school, because we didn't have a law school in Nevada. So they'd go to Washington, go to law school. He would get them jobs on Capitol Hill and get them through to become attorneys. And he wanted them to go back to Nevada to help build up the state. Uh, he presumably expected they'd support him, and that was a reasonable presumption. But as a result of this background, and that Nevada was such a small place then, Ralph knew just about every politician who came through and uh, saw them uh, upright, sideways, and occasionally prone uh, with drink, shall we say. Uh, he also gave us a great family. His wife, Sarah, who is still around, 96, sharp as a tack, and still a dear friend of ours, but Sarah ran the office of Senator Howard Cannon out here. Uh, their children, Mark, is a judge, performed my and Deborah's wedding. Sally, their daughter, is a major author. Scott, their son, is a leading local pediatrician. Uh, it, it's just been an interested, interesting, and involved family. And uh, I just look up to them all so much, starting with Ralph. And, and I will throw in, uh, it came naturally, Ralph's mother was a school teacher who came from a Mormon family where they broke up the family because of the outlawing of polygamy. His father 
had been a bartender and a miner. And so you get that combination of both idealism and realism. And I think it's something yeah. we should all aspire to. <laughs> Keep your ideals, but be realistic. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, in 1989, Steve Wynn opens up the Mirage, which became Las Vegas' first mega resort casino. Mm -hmm. Around 2006, majority of the old casinos, such, such as Riviera, Stardust, and Sahara, were torn down to bring in more of these mega casinos. I'm, um, you like change, you said earlier. So I guess, in the, what do you think of that, really? You think they should have kept some of these old places up for its history, or do you think it, it, was, it was good for Las Vegas in general for this? So I, I struggle with this. I, I really struggle with this. Well, we also have a cat visiting. Um, he, he's not walking in front of the camera at the moment. That's cool. I, I struggle with this because, on the one hand, I would like to see some historic preservation. And we actually have a good record here, or at least a pretty good record. Uh, we implode old hotel casinos. Uh, we try to preserve a lot of other buildings. We're not always successful. But the problem is people do not come to Las Vegas with the idea, I want to stay in a hotel with the amenities of the 1950s or mm -hmm. 1970s or whatever. Uh, they want the ultra-modern property. If they want an old-fashioned B&B type place, uh, there's a hotel in Boulder City that does that. You know, mm -hmm. th That's fine. That's the small town. That's where you would expect to find that. The Strip, it's another matter. Mm -hmm. So... I regret it in a lot of ways, but I also understand it and have to understand it. You cannot compete otherwise. And, you know, it's interesting when to build the Mirage had to get rid of uh, the castaways, which is an old low casino, you know, small place. When he built the wind, he tore down the desert in. And the desert and the sands, which Sheldon Adelson tore down to build the Venetian, were really the two more legendary properties. The Stardust came down later, and, and that one had a nostalgic tug, if only because my dad also worked there. Uh, but I, I do understand it. Uh, I think if you preserve the neon, for example, a lot of which has been preserved, papers and documents that tell us about the place, uh, artifacts, then we're okay. If you're just going to blow the whole thing up and make believe it never happened, then we have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is in the store for the future of Las Vegas in, in your... Well, you know, I, I always tell people when they ask me about the future of Las Vegas, I, I, I'm in history and I have enough trouble predicting the past. But... But I, I'll say this, water is the key issue, I think. And mm -hmm. Lake Mead is at its lowest level in a long time. And we may have overbuilt. There may be measures we can take that will conserve water. There may be ways to get more water. But the issue is going to be whether there's enough water to support us. The other caveat it would be events beyond our control. 9-11, suddenly the world came to a halt. The COVID pandemic. During the pandemic, my wife and I went to see some friends on the other side of town. We sat on the porch, we sat far apart, we visited, we drove home. Mm -hmm. And it was a Friday night and the strip was dark. It was eerie. But I mean, that, that was not because the strip screwed up. 
That was not because Las Vegas was not doing the right thing. It was doing the right thing. We had to close down. So the future is limited by those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. I think that Las Vegas will adapt and keep up with technology. Now, I'm not wearing it right now, but I own an Apple Watch. Now, the Apple Watch enables you to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Anybody remember Dick Tracy in the yep. comics yep. and then the movie? Well, that's what he used to do. And my goodness, it's happening. How did we get to this point? Well, mm-hmm. Las Vegas will keep adapting to these changes. And uh, I have a friend at UNLV, Bo Bernhard, who, like me, grew up here. And Bo studies gaming. And his comparison for Las Vegas also has been that Las Vegas will be to tourism as Houston has been to oil. That is where the ideas come from. That is where the management comes from. Mm-hmm. And you see that even now where Las Vegas corporations are around the country, even sometimes and the world, sometimes paying more attention to the other places than they do now to Las Vegas uh, because there's money there. But at the same time, Las Vegas is still the foundation for this. So tourism, as long as there are tourists and they keep coming, Las Vegas will have a bright future. Nice. Um, Is there anything else you want to add for my audience? Uh, I, I would just say that there's a lot of interesting history when you're in Las Vegas. Yeah, there is. I, 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 I uh, asked <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I'm partial because I'm on the board of the Mob Museum. Nice, but nice. This is cool a, place. And this is a well-regarded museum. It's not a, a place where we pay tribute to gangsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Neon Museum with, with the classic signs, At- the Atomic Testing Museum, which uh, discusses this period in particular when we were setting off mushroom clouds outside of town. And uh, there's a county museum. You go to Hoover Dam and they have a museum, Boulder City and the Boulder Dam Hotel have one. There are all kinds of ways to come here and look at our history in addition to doing all the other things you might want to do or that you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I like to say, you know, if you come here and lose money, it helps pay my salary. So I have to encourage you to come here and lose. Yeah, I hear you. That's true. You know, it does help people's salaries. So you got to look at that picture too, as well. I actually saw the mob museum when I was there last time. It was a really interesting place. It was really just a history about the mob and how in Vegas and everything. It was really how it was put together. I thought, I thought it was kind of cool. Well, and I appreciate that. And I'll tell you a quick little story that your, your viewers might enjoy. Mm-hmm. That is the first federal building built in Las Vegas. It opened in 1933. And over the years, we had got additional federal buildings and gradually the offices moved out of there until by the turn of the century, uh, the federal government wanted to get rid of the building. They actually were ready to implode the building. And the mayor at the time was Oscar Goodman, who had been an attorney here who represented organized crime figures, among others. Mm-hmm. And Oscar's comment was, here's this beautiful old building downtown. We should preserve it. And then he'd say, you know, I tried my first case there. I threw up on the steps. Uh, which he said he did. It was his first trial. He was nervous. And the rule the federal government has, if we give you a building, it has to be a cultural center of some kind. And there were people who argued for an art museum and a museum of the history of the city. And Mayor Goodman's reasoning was, we have to have something that gets people here, that they're really looking for that they can't find elsewhere. And he came up with the idea 
Now, this led to people saying it's just going to be a tribute to the mob. It's just going to be a tribute to Goodman. And he was adamant, no, we're going to tell the truth as close as we can get to it. And we do have a case about Goodman, and we have a documentary on him. He's a major figure in the history of this thing. It, it makes sense for us to have that. But the FBI and the IRS have gotten involved with us and provided us with material. That's really cool. So you really get the all the sides, including the speakeasy downstairs. You got to have a speakeasy in a mob museum. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, it was a cool place. I really enjoyed walking through that. My wife was like, "You gotta, you gotta see this place. You gotta, you gotta go there." I mean, I, I want to go because I'm, a, I'm a tire myself, and I have, I love these mob movies like Godfather, A Good Fellow, oh, yeah. Casino. So it's like. I got to do that thing about Las Vegas. My dad passed away early January and he kind of inspired me to do this one. You know, he says, why don't you do a thing about Las Vegas? You know, like, yeah, I might consider it. I might consider it. And I kind of thought about it. Like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of cool. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry you lost him, but I'm glad you followed his advice. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. That's all I have um, for this interview. Uh, I appreciate your time. Definitely. Glad this. to. It was, it was good. Thank, Thank you again. You. Definitely. Thank you, Mark. You take care. Yes, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, Michael Green. Um, I mean, it was a it was a pleasure sitting there with him and chat about the history of Las Vegas and how it pretty much got started. I know how it you know established uh, until like where it is at today, and it's it's really interesting. I really, and I felt pretty, you know, I think last time I went to Vegas, I visited the Mob Museum. I can't remember what, when, you know, I, I mean, uh, when it was put up. It used to be, a, like I said, it used to be a courthouse. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, you want Las Vegas' history? Check this podcast out. <laughs> I recommend it. Michael Green, a great guy, great interview. Uh, well worth it. Well worth it. Anyway, uh, that's all I have for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Mark and Nacido podcast. Uh, you can check my podcasts on apps such as iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Check out my YouTube channel, the Mark and Nacido podcast. And if you like it, please subscribe to it. Thank you and have a great one. God bless. Goodbye.